Good evening. I'm Judy Cooper. I'm the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I'm pleased to see all of you come out this evening. It's always wonderful to have um, a local author because then all of the author's friends and family and neighbors come. It's great. Um, I must admit that I knew nothing about the farmerettes of World War I, and I suspect that many of you probably didn't know about them either, unless um, those of you who are Elaine's friends and have lived through the birthing of this book, <laughs> you probably know a lot. But anyway, I didn't know anything about the farmerettes. Um, I think that after tonight, we're all going to know much more about this little-known story of um, American history and the First World War. Um, Elaine Weiss's new book, Fruits of Victory, is about the Women's Land Army that operated from 1917 to 1920, women from all parts of the country and all walks of life who took over the farm work after the men went off to, um, to war. Catherine Jacobs of the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard University has this to say about Elaine's book, and I quote, from a wide variety of primary sources, Weiss produces a bumper crop, I thought that was great, a bumper crop of determined women, stubborn men, telling anecdotes and rich details, all part of a surprising and surprisingly moving story of mobilization and organization, patriotism, and sexism. Uh, and as many of you know, Elaine lives in Baltimore, and she is a journalist who's had a very varied career in journalism. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, from the New York Times to the Atlantic Monthly, and as well as on national public radio. She's a frequent contributor to the Christian Science Monitor, and this is her very first book. And so you're here for a very special occasion, and we're we're so pleased that um, Elaine chose to launch her book here at the Pratt Library in the Poe Room. So please join me in welcoming Elaine Weiss. Thank you. Thank you, Judy. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, it's a real thrill to be able to launch this book. And uh, those books are still warm from the printer, I can tell you. Um, it's really a thrill to be able to bring it home to Baltimore and uh, among family and friends who've been so patient with me over these years. And also um, to bring it back to the Pratt, our great city library, uh, where I spent many happy, slightly dusty hours in the Maryland Room, in the alcove above the Maryland Room, where the stacks are. And um, it's really exciting to bring that uh, those pieces of research that I was able to dig up, put them together, and bring them back home. Um, so what I would like to do is introduce you, let's see if I'll try this, uh -huh, uh -huh. introduce you to a figure in American history that you've probably never met before, unless you've been living with me <laughs> and had no choice. Um, here she is, and here they are. These are members of the Women's Land Army of America, the Farmerettes, in the summer of 1918, during the First World War. She's quite famous at this time. She's called the Soldier of the Soil, the Girl with the Hoe, Behind the Man with a Gun, 
the Patriot Farmerette, and she's siving for Uncle Sam. The public adores her. Her pictures appear in all the magazines and newspapers, from the Ladies Home Journal to the New Republic to the New York Times, all with glowing accounts of her exploits in the field. She's featured in all the cinema newsreels. Her character appears in Broadway shows and Zigfield Follies and quite a number of vaudeville routines, as you can imagine. Um, she's invited to march in Liberty Loan Parades. Well, that's it. Yes, here she is. Here are the farmerettes um, marching down, I believe it's Fifth Avenue, uh, in New York in a Liberty Loan Parade in the fall of 1918. She has become, at this point, an icon of patriotism and pluck. She wears a uniform that has become a wartime fashion statement. There we go. She looked spiffy. Um, and she takes that uniform very seriously. This is a brochure for the Land Army uniform. Uh, pull up the trousers, turn down the bib, and down the coat, and you will have a natty costume is the rest of that brochure. There were 20,000 farmerettes deployed in American fields in 1918 in about 25 states including a few hundred here in Maryland. They were wor at work all around the state, including Pikesville. And yet today, almost no one knows who the farmerette was, what she did, or why the Women's Land Army, which was a civilian, volunteer, woman-organized, and woman-financed enterprise, it was never a government undertaking, was such a vital and a colorful part of America's war effort. I first learned about the Women's Land Army from a woman in this photograph. This is Alice Hallway. Here she is as a 17-year-old new recruit in the Vermont Women's Land Army in Brattleboro. About 60 years after this photograph was taken, Alice told me her story of what it meant to her to do her bit for her nation in land service, and what a thrill it was for her to be part of the Vermont Women land, Women's Land Army. To understand what Alice's service meant to a nation at war and to American women entering the 20th century, we have to step back to a few weeks before America entered the Great War. In early 1917, food was an anxious issue. In Europe, where the war had been raging for three years, millions of people were starving. The men had been called off to war, leaving the crops in the field to rot, and often the fields were bombed. In Great Britain, where food had, rationing had already begun, the situation was so dire that women began to organize themselves into squads to work in the fields. And by early 1917, there were tens of thousands of women in what was called a women's land army in England. They were known as the land lassies. And though they, continued, they encountered initial resistance, they became an essential part of the war effort there. And here's a recruitment poster for the British Land Army. God speed the plow and the woman who drives it. 
In early 1917, America was still neutral in the European conflict. President Woodrow Wilson had just been reelected under the banner, he kept us out of war. But Americans could see war coming and feared hunger coming too. In February 1917, food riots erupted in major American cities. In New York City, thousands of women set fire to produce carts, smashed butcher shops, and stormed City Hall to protest a steep rise in prices. The reason why food had suddenly become so expensive was the European demand for American foodstuffs had tripled or quadrupled the cost of basic commodities just overnight. Police had to subdue the rioting housewives with their clubs, and the rioting continued for most of a week. The food riots spread to Philadelphia, where one man was shot dead by police and an old woman was trampled to death. Baltimore took preventative action against unrest. The mayor sent a fleet of 24 city trucks with four men on each truck, city workers, armed with uh, cash from the city's contingency fund, when the city had a contingency fund. And they were charged to buy food on the spot from the county farmers in all the counties surrounding the city and to bring it back to the city markets and sell it at cost. So here at Lexington Market, the food would be sold at cost to cut out the middleman and the food speculators who were making the prices rise. And it worked. There were no food riots in Baltimore. But protests continued in Cincinnati, in Chicago, Congress held hearings. Fears of broad civil unrest were spoken aloud and written about in the newspaper. Remember, the Russian Revolution had just begun. So when America did declare war in the first days of April, the food riots were still echoing in people's ears, and the nation's food supply became an urgent concern. How are we going to feed our allies across the water and have enough left to feed ourselves, asked an editorial in the New York Times. The Wall Street Journal agreed, no matter how many and urgent are the problems in our war preparations, let it be remembered that victory may depend upon the food supply. Just days after declaring war, Woodrow Wilson appealed to the nation's farmers to plant additional acres of crops. Upon the farmers of this country, in large measure, rests the fate of the war and the fate of the nations, Wilson said. Food will win the war became an official government slogan. But there was a major problem with this because American farmers couldn't plant more acres because they didn't have enough farmhands to allow them to do it. Any able-bodied man who had not been um, conscripted was lured away to the uh, high-paying jobs in the city making munitions or other war material. And so American farmers just couldn't do what the president had asked. And here's a drawing from Life magazine. Okay, showing a farmer with the specter of a skeleton, saying food shortage in the background. For every man who must shoulder a rifle for military duty, we had better furnish inducement for another to take up a hoe for farm work, said the New York Times. A few possible solutions were discussed. Use convicts for farm labor. Use male office workers in the city on their vacation. Use prisoners of war shipped over from Europe. Use men who flunk their military physical exams. Use conscription to raise an agricultural army as well as a military one. Use schoolboys too young to enlist in the army. They were really pleased about that. All of these were tried. None of them worked too well. 
But beyond the narrow vision of government planners, women were planning their own solution. Women around the country readied themselves to get their hands dirty. A, suffrage, a suffragist chairman of agriculture has been appointed in every state in the union, reported the Women's Journal, the official publication of the National American Women's Suffrage Association, just six weeks after the war began. Chairman of potatoes being the title in which they rejoice. <laughs> women's organizations, including suffrage societies, women's colleges, gardening clubs, civic clubs, the YWCA, and the National League for Women's Service, which was a war work, work agency, began to train women to assume agricultural work on their own, with no government support or encouragement. On the contrary, a lot of discouragement. Women knew how to organize themselves. They'd been doing it for years in the suffrage movement, in the labor movement, various social reform movements, and they'd been watching their English sisters form their land army. So just three weeks after America entered the war, a large-scale training farm opened on 200 acres in the Bronx, still a rural area of New York City. 700 women were enrolled for farm training. There were classes on the weekend for working women, and 2,000 high school girls were enrolled. Another large training farm opened on the grounds of the State School of Agriculture at Farmingdale on Long Island, where women learned to drive tractors working into the night by the light of the tractor headlights. This is not a nighttime shot, but you see them learning to drive the tractors. Women's colleges also joined this Women on the Land movement. Vassar College asked its students to take over the work of its 750-acre farm, on which they relied for the school foodstuffs. They began work at 4.30 in the morning, working a grueling eight-hour day. And I'm sure my daughter would have been among them. Here, you see the Fasser farmerettes. At this point, they're actually called the romperettes, because they're wearing sort of rompers, uh, plowing. Here they are chopping wood. And they did such an exemplary job that the farm superintendent wrote them a glowing recommendation. They did the work as well as any man and made good far beyond the most sanguine expectations. 400 Mount Holyoke women worked on their college farm. And here in Baltimore, Goucher College, which was downtown at that time, created a large vegetable garden to train its students for farm work. Barnard College in New York undertook the most ambitious of the training projects, the Women's Agricultural Camp at Bedford near Mount Kisco. Led by Barnard's chair of the geology department, Professor Ida Helen Ogilvie in her Land Army uniform. <laughs> the purpose of the camp was not only to train women from the ages of 16 to 45, by the way, to undertake strenuous farm labor, but to also experiment with living and working conditions. The Bedford camp came up with what it was called the unit system. The women farmers would live communally in a sort of pastoral sorority house, and uh, they'd hire uh, their own cook, and a chaperone, and hire themselves out to work. They would negotiate uh, their pay with the farmer. They'd go out every day. Here you see them being driven in a Model T named Henry um, to their, to their uh, appointed um, assignment for the day. Allow, making the women live together had some really distinct advantage, advantages and became the model for the land army. It allowed them to have control over working conditions so that they could impose an eight-hour day, which was not the usual in farming, and also demand equal pay to men, which was about $2 a day, 25 cents an hour. 
And here you see the influence of the trade unionism, which a lot of the land army uh, founders were, had been part of. Here are some more uh, women at Bedford who are working in the field in their overalls because one of the bold moves that Professor Ogilvy made was that there would be no skirts to get in the way. They were too cumbersome, and so she put them in men's overalls or bloomers or pants. Uh, and that's how the Land Army uniform evolved. And there's um, different uniforms are, are uh, employed in the different areas of the country. The other part of the unit plan, which was so interesting, was that it would um, make no strain on the farmer's wife. There was a real sense of sisterhood that they didn't want the farmer's wife to have to cook for them, which she usually had to cook for the farmhands. And here you see um, both a sort of feminist touch and also the influence of what was called the country life movement, which was a rural reform movement, which was uh, very um, popular at the beginning of the century. The other important thing that the, um, the unit, the, the living together and going out and working for the farmers allowed women to do was that it mixed all economic classes, all educational backgrounds, all ethnicities, not race, however. That was a uh, taboo that was not broached. The working woman, the woman of leisure, the student, the shop girl, the factory worker, the immigrant would all work and live together. And here's, again, the influence of, of urban reformers and the settlement movement. So that first summer in Bedford, and the Bedford camp continued for three more years and actually continued on a private basis with Professor Ogilvy and her partner, Delia Westmarble. They continued it as a women's-only farm for another 40 years. But in this first year, in the Bedford camp, there were 174 women who were trained. They included 60 college women, 38 factory workers, 18 school teachers, four college professors, five secretaries or stenographers, seven licensed chauffeurs, six concert singers, two florists, two designers, two governesses, and a news reporter. <laughs> Professor Ogilvy was very proud of this. We are working out one of the most interesting experiments in democracy to break through class barriers the Land Army shows to women the unreality of such distinctions and illustrates these principles through the unhampered use of muscles and brain. The spirit of the Land Army is the true substance of the democratic idea. Well, that was fine, but at first no farmers would employ the Bedford farmerettes. They were pretty prejudiced against allowing women into their fields. Now, of course, women had always worked in the fields, but they'd never been paid. Gradually, desperate. One farmer would try, and he was pleased, and he'd tell his friends. By the end of the season, 100 farmers had hired the farmerettes, and there was a long waiting list to employ them. The president of the Bedford Farmers Club said his members could not have gotten through the summer without the aid of the farmerettes. Beyond those accomplishments in the field, the farmerette made a political statement, too. All over America today, suffragists are leading a back-to-the-land movement in response to the nation's call for a greater production of foodstuffs. That's what the Women's Journal said. They have put their hand to the plow and are not turning back. The woman with the hoe is easily discernible just back of the man with the gun. So the suffragists were very enthusiastic about land service. You wouldn't think so. It's a sort of primitive profession. But they saw it as a pioneering role. 
breaking through you know, some sort of sod ceiling. The women, again, had always worked on farms, but they were never paid. They were always the farm wife or the farm daughter or the farm sister. This was also a different kind of war work, beyond the accepted domestic sphere of most women's war work, which was knitting, rolling bandages, caring for the sick, conserving sugar, making meatless Monday and wheatless Wednesday recipes, the voluntary kind of uh, rationing that America had. The, governor, the government's idea of a role for women in the war was to become a kitchen soldier or a soldier of the garbage pail or a Hoover helper, eliminating household waste and voluntarily rationing the use of sugar, meats, and wheat. And the Hoover helper is a reference to Herbert Hoover, who at this time is the food administrator, called the food dictator. Um, and he is in charge of making posters like this. Oh, here's another one, the Bedford camp. Okay to urge Americans to save wheat. We cannot afford to have women making bandages and knitting things. We must not waste women's labor in this way, insisted suffragist leader Harriet Stanton Blatch, who is the daughter of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and a land army leader. Instead of just conserving, women should be producing, becoming soldiers of the soil, not just soldiers of the garbage pail. Most importantly, suffragists wanted to use their land service to prove their patriotism in the war, their good citizenship, and use it as a strong argument to grant women the vote. And it just so happens that in New York State, in November of 1917, there was a referendum on the ballot to give women the vote in state elections. And so here you see the suffrage society posed behind a large billboard, women's suffrage party garden plot, and they're urging people, men, to vote, to give women the vote. By the fall of 1917, the farmerette had proved herself on the land. Farmers asked if she could return for spring planting, and so <clears throat> with the experiments of the summer of success, the land army extended into a national operation. The mobilization of woman power on the farm is the need of the hour, said Harriet Blant Stanton Blatch. And in December of that year, it was 1917, just at the end of that first season of the war, a consortium of women's organizations, ranging from the Garden Club of America to the Association of Collegiate Alumni, from the Cosmopolitan Club to the Suffrage Associations and the Anti-Suffrage Associations and the Temperance Associations, joined with agricultural and labor leaders to establish the Women's Land Army of America. So by early spring 1918, the Women's Land Army was organized in 40 states, some more active than others, and also at the county and the town level. An elaborate recruitment and publicity campaign was launched. The Land Army sent speakers out to factories, to schools, to colleges, to women's clubs. To convince the farmers, they sent Land Army representatives with noted agriculturalists, and they visited the Grange Halls and the Farm Bureau meetings, because it was a two-pronged convincing. And here are some of the really wonderful recruitment posters that they showed at the rallies. This one is done by Herbert Paws. Women enlist now, help the farmer fight the food famine. Again, this is a very important, considered very important part of the war effort. Whoops. This one is, let's see, I have to go back. Get behind the girl he left behind him. Join the land army. This is actually drawn by Charles Dana Gibson of the Gibson Girls. 
This is one that appears in the book. It is actually a YWCA recruitment poster for the Land Army. This one is a New Jersey division because some of the states issued their own. Here's an Ohio holding a great shovel. I think that's it. Okay. Um, here, very near where we stand tonight, in March of 1918, the Land Army held a recruitment rally at McCoy Hall, which was the big auditorium in John, at Johns Hopkins University, which was downtown at that time, and it wasn't far from here, towards Monument Street. There were posters like these and magic lantern slides showing the English Land Army at work and the Bedford Farmerettes. And then they got a spirited pep talk from one of the veterans of the Bedford camp. You have got to get over your fear of snakes, one farmerette vet told the women in the audience, as reported by the Baltimore Sun. You have to let a snake follow you down the row of potatoes you are cultivating. Her remark caused a polite shiver to pass through her audience, but it did not prevent them from signing registration cards for the Women's Land Army of Maryland, the Sun reported. At the Goucher College Women's War Work Recruitment Fair, a miniature farm with crepe paper vegetables and a Cupid doll farmerette was a big hit. And that one day, over 100 Goucher students signed up for summer duty in the Land Army. One of those Goucher students was a woman named Hortense Powdermaker. She was a brilliant history major, and she decided that land service was going to be her contribution to the war. Now, Hortense would grow up to become one of the most influential cultural anthropologists of the 20th century. But in the spring of 1918, all she wanted to do was learn how to drive a tractor. She and the other Goucher recruits were given tractor training at one of the farms in Baltimore County to prepare them for their labors in the field. She was assigned to the Land Army unit in Falston, and there was also a Goucher unit in Catonsville, and there were also Goucher women sent uh, to Long Island. And there were other Maryland units in Frederick, in Hagerstown, Claiborne on the Eastern Shore, Tacoma Park, Rockville, and Pikesville. And as in almost every place around the country where the Land Army began work, at first the farmers would not hire them. This appeared in the Catonsville Argus, the local newspaper, which was actually an excellent publication. I don't know if it still exists. The harvest is ripe. Masculine laborers are few, and still many farmers in Baltimore County are not availing themselves of the industrial assistance offered by the Patriotic Women's Land Army. The farmerettes have been doing excellent work on the farms, and all who have employed them speak in the highest terms of their efforts. The farmerettes are available and anxious to assist in this important patriotic work. Well, perhaps a pep talk from the governor might help, and so Governor Emerson Columbus Har Harrington came to talk to the Catonsville farmers and he extolled the work of the farmerettes, and he urged the farmers to please hire them. And as happened over and over again all over the country, once the farmers tried the farmerettes, in the field they were convinced. One Catonsville farmer was so pleased that he unilaterally raised the pay of the farmerettes he had employed and uh, <clears throat> hired them for the rest of the summer. These husky, sunburned maidens with muscles that are becoming more steely than they could ever hope to become in the best gymnasium are now doing the heaviest kind of farm work, said the Argus, with clear admiration, and doing it with a vim that would put the average sluggish masculine farmhand to shame. <laughs> the local residents in these rural communities were of two minds about the farm rats. Most of the time, they were shocked. One Baltimore woman 
who was uh, enrolled in the Land Army at Tacoma Park, recalled it this way. It certainly did amuse the people who lived in the towns where we worked. They would all run to the tracks and stare at us as if we were live trained monkeys performing for the children at a circus. People along the road started yelling, there go the crazy farmerettes, for they all made fun of us for wearing overalls and doing men's work, except the farmers who said they didn't know how they would have gotten along without the girls to help them this summer. Others found the farmerettes charming. They were, after all, cultivated young ladies under their overalls, and they invited them to, their t- to tea in their sun parlors. So the competition goes on, the Argus reported, with everybody trying to see who can be the nicest to the farmerettes. Oh, for the life of the farmerette. Oh, to be a soil soldier in Catonsville. We felt so patriotic and so satisfied with what we were accomplishing for Mr. Hoover and Uncle Sam, wrote Hortense Powdermaker, who became a leader of the Goucher Land Army contingent. So the Land Army was a great success in Maryland. Even the most skeptical farmers in this vicinity have accorded them unstinted praise, reported one local newspaper. Many of the crops have been saved for the country. And all over the nation, farmerettes were at work in the summer of 1918. We're going to take a little tour. In California, there were thousands in both northern and southern California. Their motto was, Joan of Arc saved France, and we are going back to the land to save America. Here they are again in California, driving a rather amazing contraption of a tractor. Here they are in Greensboro, North Carolina. Get a load of those hats. Again, Greensboro, North Carolina. Here they are in Illinois, outside of Chicago. That was also Illinois. Let's see, go back to Illinois. Here, we go. Here they are in New England. Dusting potatoes in New England. Here they are in New Mexico. And the woman sitting um, sort of in the center there uh, is a woman named Isabella Selms Ferguson. She later becomes one of the first congresswomen to be elected. Here they are enjoying a bath in New Mexico in a horse trough. (laughs) One of my favorite pictures. Here they are in Ohio. in Pennsylvania, taking a break. And again in Pennsylvania. In Connecticut, they grew and harvested tobacco for smokes to soothe the troops abroad. In New Jersey, they picked belladonna for essential battlefield medications. And in Augusta, Georgia, they picked cotton, white women picking cotton in the fields, which caused quite a stir. The, farmer, so the farmerettes earned public accolades, like this poem printed in the Baltimore American and then later in the Wall Street Journal. I'll read it to you. To do her bit she's ready, of work she's not afraid. She's waiting for the summons in fitting garb arrayed. She'll grasp the tools of labor and never pine or th- fret, but do her stunt appointed, the plucky farmerette. For soldiers sore are needed, and as to camp they go, to take the place now vacant of the woman of the man behind the hoe. The woman steps out bravely, she's never failed us yet. She'll not make a beginning with the sturdy farmerette. 
The toll is hard and novel, but it is there to do. This is not play, but earnest, and the new recruit is true. To country and to duty, she will have no regret. And so we hail and bless her, the patriot farmerette. Now, in the sincerest form of flattery, she also became the target of parody. Here is a satirical cartoon uh, drawn by Rockwell Kent under a pseudonym. Uh, called The Fair Farmerettes and Their Shameless Chauffeurs. This was in the magazine Puck, and it made fun of uh, sort of the dilettante nature that he thought they might be displaying. Here is a uh, Life magazine cartoon that says, What if the German propagandists have started a campaign to intimidate our farmerettes? And you see a man uh, releasing some mice. And then... There was this song that appeared in a Ziegfeld Follies review with music by Victor Herbert. I'm sorry, I don't have the music, but lyrics by P.G. Woodhouse. And I'll just read you some of the lyrics to that. Girls have found a way today to do their bit. They do not sit at home anymore and shirk hard work, for everybody's doing it. Uncle Sam, they adore working for Every girl, says Mr. Hoover, finds that farm work will improve her. From the city, he'd remove her to become a farmerette. Mabel, Mamie, Mabel, Mamie, Maud, and Lizzie watch the dear things getting busy. Working never makes them dizzy, now that they are farmerettes. Ever, ever since he, they introduced her, from the farm, each girl's a booster, and her closest friend's the rooster, now that she's a farmerette. <laughs> they had to take everything. The land army even had its own West Point, or Annapolis, if you will. Its officer's training school, which was the Wellesley Training Camp and Experiment Station on the campus of Wellesley College in Massachusetts. This was the most ambitious and audacious adventure of the land army, and my personal favorite. The camp was run by Miss Edith Deal, who at that time was one of the most famous bookbinders in America. And she's in the land army uniform that she designed herself. Deal wanted the Wellesley camp to be much more than just an Aggie school. To her, it should be a great outdoor laboratory for testing and probing and measuring the capacity of women to undertake strenuous labor, quickly master new skills, and assume leadership roles. These were the skills she believed women would need to lead the land army, to meet their duties in the rest of the greater war effort, and to assume their proper place in the unfolding 20th century. She brought in professional staff of women, a woman physician to conduct physical tests, a psychologist to administer a battery of intelligence exams, a nutritionist nutritionist to design the correct diet for women engaged in hard manual labor. They wanted to know just how many calories were necessary. And a driving instructor, because Ms. Deal felt that every woman needed to learn to drive. Here is the camp. The women built it themselves under instruction. She wanted them to know how to build a camp so in case they were assigned out in the wilderness, they'd know how to do it. They did all the plumbing. Here they are. She brought in the Marines. Twice a week, a drill instructor from the Charleston Naval Shipyards in Boston came to camp and led the women in exercises, foot movements, and drills. Here they are doing push-ups. 
And since Steele was also a firm believer in the importance of efficiency and a devotee of the new concept of scientific work management, she also brought to camp the most famous practitioner of the day, Frank Bunker Gilbreth. Gilbreth's manic devotion to efficiency in both life and work was later made famous by his children's memoir, Cheaper by the Dozen. And Edith Deal made sure the Land Army trainees got a goodly dose of Gilbreth's zealotry. He used lantern slides to teach the women how to eliminate waste motion, how to use their tools more effectively, how to use their bodies more effectively. They put his lessons to work not only in the field, but even in the dining room, where they experimented with the most efficient ways to pass the food from one end to the other. And they timed it. The camp experimented with the size of farm tools best suited for women and the ergonomically correct way to handle them. The women were timed with a stopwatch to determine the most efficient balance of work and rest periods. From the trial and error of this grand laboratory, Edith Deal drew a blueprint for a permanent land army of women. And there were ambitious plans to put 100,000, 200,000 women on the land in the next year. And then came peace. But the land army kept going. The influenza epidemic meant that the soldiers were not able to return very quickly. And the farmers wanted to be assured that they could plant in the spring. And so the land army was asked to keep going, and they did. And they actually were able to expand into areas where they hadn't been before. And the men who did return, a lot of them did not want to return to the farms. And that's where we get the song, how you're going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris. Well, they didn't return. And America had also had even more uh, or greater obligation to provide Europe with food, because not only were we providing the allies, but also the d destroyed nations, the Netherlands, Belgium. And so the land army kept going and entered into a rather awkward marriage of convenience with the Labor Department, which never got consummated because they never received any financial aid or any structural support. But it did continue into the field in 1919. But by the fall of 1919, the land army was pretty much disbanded. Parts of it did continue into 1920, uh, in Pennsylvania, actually. Uh, it continued, and several other spots. But just about 20 years later, there was another war, and a dangerous shortage of farm labor, again. And the government had no plan, again. But there were women who had been farmerettes in the first war, and who remembered and began to organize on their own and established local land armies. And their loudest champion was First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, who had visited, who remembered the land army from the First War and also had visited the land army in England in World War II. And she pushed her husband to establish a women's land army of the Second World War. And here is a mother and her daughter, one in the uniform of the First World War on the right, the second, uh, the second World War, which was actually government-run. And so to end, I would like, if you will indulge me, to uh, anyone who would like to sing <laughs> one of the great Land Army songs. And there, there are lots of songs. Uh, they're in the book. And if you want to visit the book's website, you can hear them, a spirited version of the, these songs on there. And this one was actually written by um, the uh, Southern California 
Land Army Administrator, Land Army Director, and uh, we can sing softly so we don't uh, interrupt anyone in the library, but please join in. Our Mother Earth has called us for the nations we must feed. We have rallied to her standard to produce our greatest need. We will labor on her bosom and achieve that worthy deed. As we go working on, we'll skip the hallelujah. We are told by Herbert Hoover that the war by food is won. So we're laboring at production from the dawn till set of sun. We have donned the khaki uniform to fight the mighty hunt. And we go working on. We're going to whip the Kaiser and our hearts are unafraid. We will help to win this wicked war with woe and rake and spade. Though our tasks be of the hardest, we will never be dismayed, but still go working on. We have joined our hands for service with our sisters across the sea. We have forged a mighty weapon in our wet for liberty. By the spirit of our labor in the woman's land army, as we go working on. Thank you very much. <laughs> questions? Questions? Anyone? Any questions? Yes, yes. Right, right. That's a great question. What usually happened, and again, this is in the book, but I, I didn't deal with it here, um, there would be a local organizing committee, and they would be charged with finding uh, a house that someone would lend to them, or they'd live in tents, um, or in a barn. Uh, there are lots of examples of women living in the, um, actually in the horse stalls, um, just making it comfortable and putting little decorations up. And they would, so they would live together uh, in wherever they could, and that was up to a local organizing committee. And that local organizing committee, along with the state committee, also had to raise the funds for them. Uh, so this was all, besides the women in the field, there are thousands more women who are um, organizing, recruiting, um, uh, raising funds, literally bake sales, um, finding people to donate sofas, beds, cots, crockery. Um, it's an enormous um, volunteer effort at every level. So of the hundreds of, of Land Army units, and again, some of them were large camps and some of them were just, you know, 10 people, um, they, would, they would just make do with what they could. And sometimes it wasn't actually very comfortable. There, there are um, accounts of... Um, Pests in the house having to be fumigated and no water running. It was it was pretty uh, primitive sometimes. And sometimes in in actually in Catonsville they lived in a grand manor. Um, a, uh, a mercantile prince gave them the run of his his farm and his house. So it was really quite grand. So it really depended. Yes, sir. Turkey and mm -hmm. yes, they did. They did. Um, well, uh, they did. Women often did take into the field. It wasn't as organized, but in Germany and in France, they did. The women were in the field. That that 
um, wheat poster, which showed the women of France pulling the uh, plow by themselves because the, the, they'd eaten the horses already, or they'd been killed. They'd been conscripted into the army or they'd died. Yes, they did. It, it wasn't quite as, as, as organized, but the, yes, they did. They did. Well, they contributed greatly. Basically, they, they allowed the farmers to, to be able to plant more and be able to, to harvest more. And um, I have a number in the book, I believe, of, of how many tons, how many millions of tons were sent over in that, again, 18-month um, period of the war and then another year or two years. Um, the reason that, that the land army continues also is there's great fear of, um, of, again, riots and privation in Europe and the spread of Bolshevism. And one of the um, recruiting tools that the Land Army had in 1919 was said, you can help this, uh, prevent the, sped, the spread of Bolshevism because hunger breeds unrest. Well, you, you mentioned Bolshevism just now and mm-hmm. Well, I don't think... I think there probably were, were definitely women who, who espoused that. And I saw some comments of women who were um, a little more enamored <laughs> of the revolution going on than, than maybe the Land Army uh, brass would have liked. Um, but for the most part, um, yeah, there were, there were a lot of labor organizers involved, too. So socialism was, I think, something that was discussed in the farmhouse. Um, but there, there wasn't. Um, there were some actually in California. There were some uh, instances of uh, women being court-martialed in the land army sense and thrown out of the movement for um, uh, German sympathies, for for expressing German sympathies. Yes, and and sabotage. They were putting rotten peaches in the, uh, and and yes. So that they were, she was drummed out for sabotage. She was covered in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, so they were very worried about that, about the, the image. Um, so there is, there is some of that, too. You're right. Yes? You mentioned um, that they had um, lack of cooperation from the government. Oh, yes. It was interesting. It was, it was much more cooperative on the local level and on the state level usually. It was the national level. It was the um, Department of Agriculture and the Department of Labor that just was clueless. And it was very interesting, and I, and I deal with this a lot in the book, about how they just um, wouldn't open their eyes and see what was happening. And, and it almost becomes comical because the farmers are saying, look, we like the farmerettes. Don't, don't take them away. And the um, uh, cabinet secretary of, of agriculture saying, oh, there's no problem. There's, we don't need women. Uh, women should go into the farmhouse and bake pies and clean from the farm, farm wife. That's what women should do. Um, so when uh, Catherine when Jacob talks about the sexism, it's, it's rife in there. But it's also that, the, to be fair, the agriculture department didn't know what to do and was trying all kinds of things. It just was a little slower than they should have been to recognize that this was a solution that was that was working. Uh, they put their um, their energies in what was called the um, uh, boys' working reserve, which was the underage teenagers who were um, 
too young to go off. So, so picture this. Uh, their older brothers have gone off to war. Uh, they're told they can go to the farm. They're not, they want to enlist, and they're not at all happy. And they were not very cooperative and did not behave very well, and the farmers sent them back very often. In some states, they work better than others. Uh, but it's it just so amazing that the government saw this organization working, refused to give it any kind of sanction or endorsement. Uh, there's actually a, a very comical section in the book where they, they try to get the president to sign a, a little, you know, I support the land army, and it takes, takes all their friends in high places to, to push it through. The, the, the war was not well administered, from what I can gather, in lots of different areas, but agriculture especially. Yes? You know, in, in all the years I've been working on this, I don't know the answer, and I'd like to ask some other historians. Um, what, what was so surprising to me, and again, I started out because I knew Alice Hallway, and I knew that there was a land army, but I could find nothing, nothing about it. And um, there is no book about it. There's no comprehensive article about it. Um, and so you'd think, well, it just didn't exist. And then if you start digging, it's all there. It's all in the newspapers. It's all in the, it's all in the records of the National Archives, in, in memos between the, the bureaucrats. It's all in the um, files of the, an organization called the National Women's Farm and Garden Association, which is at uh, the Radcliffe Institute at Harvard. Um, it's in different places. And, and the, the real challenge for me was finding these little places. Uh, there was no map. There was no one who said, well, this is where the history of the land army is. Go find it. It was in literally hundreds of places. It was, it was archaeology. And it, if you look in the, in the um, uh, bibliography, you, you'll see <laughs> just how far and wide it had to, to be. And, and I would you know, dig up another little fact and come down to the dinner table and say, look what I found. I mean, it was literally like that. And it was just putting those pieces together over time that allowed the book so this is really the first chronicle of it. And I can't understand. It's not like they were obscure. It's not like they were just a couple of them. You know, there's just 15 women in the whole country. There's thousands and thousands more involved in, in supporting them. There are um, uh, benefits at the Opera House in, in New Jersey and in New York. I don't understand how this just slipped. But it did, and it makes you think, you know, where else it might have... What other uh, interesting tidbits are out there? Judy. I was. <laughs> yes, I was. I was trying to write a book about her. Um, I was uh, taking a, a, an oral history from her. She was sort of the village storyteller in this mountain town, and uh, I spent almost a year with her and took down her stories. And this was one of them. And um, I said, "Gee, that's great!" And I wrote it down. You know, Women's Land Army. And for years, I tried to find out what what it was, and I couldn't. And that's what started it. So it was really talking to her. Mm-hmm. Well, in suffrage, it really did. Uh, again, women did a lot of things in World War I, and I don't want to make it seem like uh, the Land Army was the absolutely only service they. They were amazingly uh, organized, and, and one of the fascinating things I found was just how organized, uh, again, on their own, they were. And whether that's the Red Cross or the Salvation Army or the Western Union Hello Girls who went over to, to run the telephone lines for the Army, um, the Motor Corps, 
uh, which did volunteer driving, um, uh, and of course the nurses. Um, they are, and there's also women, and this is something that people don't really realize, and there's actually a wonderful book called Rosie's Mom, which is a, a book of photographs of women in war industries in World War I. So Rosie the Riveter was not a pioneer in any way. Women were in the munition factories, in the aircraft factories, uh, in all kinds of dangerous uh, professions in World War I. Yes, they did. It, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't um, just as uh, they got paid about what soldiers got paid. Um, so what the usual way, and, and, and different units could decide how they wanted to do it. Um, usually what happened was the farmer would pay the, the unit captain uh, the $2 a day for each farmerette he employed. That money went to buy food, um, to, to uh, buy gas for the, for the car, uh, spare tires, uh, a housekeeper if necessary. Um, so they would pool the money and then they would get out about $15 a month. So it wasn't riches. Other um, units decided to do it differently and the women would be paid directly and then would pay uh, into the fund by themselves. So they were different and, and they were also structured differently. Uh, you could decide to have a full democracy where everyone decided or you'd have a captain and a chaperone. Uh, finding chaperones was very difficult. Um, because you needed, you needed uh, they wanted more mature women. Um, and uh, it was a kind of thankless task. It was being the housekeeper and being the, you know, the, the woman who made the, the young maidens come home at night and get into bed. And so um, it, was, it was pretty a pretty thankless task. And Connecticut had a real problem recruiting um, mature women. And so what they did, a very clever idea, they sent a sermon to every clergyman in the state to read from the pulpit and say, and they figured they'd get the right kind of woman, a church-going woman, and they filled their quota. Yes? Two questions. Do you have sure. a sense of the total number of women involved? And could you say what some of the sources were for your photos and posters? Oh, sure. Um, again, the numbers are really sketchy. I, I think the numbers that are used are usually between 15,000 and, and, um, 15, and 20,000. Um, but that doesn't include some of the school groups who were not officially part of the land army. Sometimes they were just administered locally. It doesn't include women who went out just for the day. In, in some places, it was not considered um, appropriate for women to live in these Amazonian work camps uh, in the middle of uh, the countryside. Just People wouldn't accept it. And so what they would do is just gather women up locally and send them out on a daily basis to help. Um, so... Uh, it was um, it was done that way, and then um, in terms of sources, uh, there's a lot. Uh, National Archives, Library of Congress, um, the Radcliffe Institute, the Schlesinger Library has a very nice collection. Um, Chicago History Museum. I'm just thinking of what's what's up there, and, and there there are more. And there were some that were too expensive to reprint, so I didn't. But again. Archivists all over the country are really excited about this book because they would say, no one asked. We have this stuff. I, no one has ever asked for it. This is really cool. Um, and so they're kind of excited. And again, you'll see in, in the acknowledgments, I thank a lot of archivists because they would... Um, I got to go to quite a few, but, but not all. And they were just thrilled to, to bring that out again and say, wow, I didn't realize our city or state did that. And I'm hoping that this actually stimulates... Uh, more research 
because there's more out there. I, I know there is. Um, I haven't gone to the Pikesville Library, probably. Um, I did go to the Catonsville Library, and they had a very nice uh, selection of, of things for me. But every town, every school, especially uh, school, uh, higher education, high schools, churches, um, women's groups, they all probably have records talking about their service on the land. And so it would be very exciting, and I'm hoping that people will start to dig that up now that they know it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, were they, uh, were the women uh, significantly impacted by it? Some were, yeah, uh, because it, it, it really hits in October, and that's the end of the harvest season. So it depended where they were and how isolated they were. But there, there are, I, I found accounts of women, of uh, some of the organizers, having to drive uh, girls to the hospital or to, to uh, quarantine. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something that requires so much digging over a long period of time, how do you uh, ration your time? How do you support yourself <laughs> while you're working on your book? <laughs> with all the well, <laughs> my husband is here, <laughs> and he he was we we agreed that this was a project that I really 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 wanted to do, and you know did some freelance work over the way, but this was this was my time to do it. So no, I don't think you could. You could do it. I mean, it would take a lot longer. Uh, because, again, it was finding out where this was. It wasn't knowing, well, it's at this library. Interesting thing also, in the course of writing this book, the Internet blossomed. When I started it, it really wasn't a research tool for me. And by the end, I could find photographs online. I could find finding aids, which are you know, inventories of, of manuscripts, online, in California, in England. I could do so much more. It was a very powerful, exciting development, which, which I was very happy to see. And I'm sure it'll, it'll become even easier for researchers. But it made a big, big difference for me. I'm glad I did it at that time. It, I don't know what I would do if I wasn't able to make that kind of connection, to, to just get an idea of that I should call the South Medford, Oregon Historical Society. Any others? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, canning was a very big. And again, this was there were canning enterprises, uh, sometimes part of the land army, but often um, a women's group, uh, Girl Scouts, um, your local, you know, Homewood. Pardon? Uh, in glass or in tin, and there were there were actually uh, canning facilities that would come into a town on the railroad be a hole on a, on a flatbed, and you'd go in and, and can the vegetables. In the, in the basements of lots of uh, hospitals and schools, they would can things for the winter. So a lot of it was keeping, and of course there were victory gardens, and I don't deal with that, but victory gardens is a big movement, and it's basically um, plowing up the uh, yard beside the library and planting things, uh, the baseball field in town. Um, it's, it's just taking whatever acreage you can. And there's a school garden army that does it uh, in school playgrounds. So that's a whole other movement. But again, food is really, really important. And the land army decided they weren't going to be involved in that. 
though I'm sure some women did do gardening and there were gardening clubs who were involved, but they said, we want to help the farmer. We want to help the industrial part. That's where the, the real action is. Yes? Will this book now be used in colleges? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, Mm-hmm. I hope so. I mean, I hope that that it'll be a supplement to their to their uh, um, or American history. Yeah, because again, it's just it's just another part that hasn't been. And one of the things I I really uh, think is interesting in the book is also besides the direct land army experience was to see how the women organized and also to see how the government treated the women. And there's uh, lots of sections about. Um, the, the prime women's organization at the national level, which is called the Women's Council of Defense, uh, and there are very famous women. Ida Tarbell is on that, uh, some, some very, very famous uh, women at the time. And they are treated very badly by the government. And finally, they resign. And they said, you, you, know, you gave us no, no real mandate for, for power. You gave us no funds. We had to go to the men to ask for funds. It was basically a, you, know, you had to go to daddy to ask for anything, and they refused. And they were very, very uh, upset about it. And, and I do chronicle that, and I've not seen that really discussed anywhere else. But um, they, they really had a, a hard time um, trying to, to uh, do what they really felt they should do. And the, the men just said, go back to the kitchen. Well, I think that um, they can recite that refrain, and we come along, maybe. <laughs> uh, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you very much.